All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 52, Going Live with Good Soil with Matt here. We try to do this every Tuesday at the same time live. Um, hopefully, a certain amount of people find that valuable. Um, otherwise, we should just do recorded ones at our convenience. Uh, but th- this time, we've both carved out of our day every every week to try to make sure uh, both of us most of the time are available, but at least one of us, then we have a guest host if, if, that, if that's the case. How, how, how do you think it's gone so far this year, Matt? Pretty good, honestly. You know, this is something I wasn't really sure what was going to happen with it, but we just have kind of committed to sticking to it. And it's it's kind of our idea of, you know, open sourcing some of our our thinking and and our kind of investment uh, like strategies in real time with people, which, you know, I think is a pretty unusual way of doing things for, you know, professional money managers. But I think, you know, for us and for our know, community of people who kind of follow the work that we do, I think the, the feedback's been pretty positive, uh, probably more positive than I would have expected. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think yeah. it's been a good experiment so far. What do you think? I think so, too. It almost forms like a unique, it almost helps helps to form like sort of a unique fellowship amongst, you know, uh, retail investor, you know, individual investors who are, you know, market participants and whatever, whether they're part of the media or whether they're, they work at a institutional firm, even as a portfolio manager, they just want to hear different perspectives, but a bunch of people just get to congregate together with us to hear different ideas or different ways of looking at the macro markets real time. And we try to take a lot of feedback in from the comments and we read comments and questions and half our, you know, so it's been really, really good. I think so far we'll, we'll try to keep it going and, uh, it's been, been fun. So usually as usual, we start out with macro market stuff. Um, and then we go into like Tesla, Elon and other stocks that we follow and then Q and a. So I guess as normal, um, yeah, macro market, uh, it's a bit confusing. You know, last week was really strong. Uh, this week is off to a, a, a poor start almost, you know, it's just up and down, up and down. And, uh, a lot of people, uh, were speculating that the month end of the month, we'd just sort of see a continuous rise um, for rebalancing purposes of institutions, pension funds, whatever. And also the Russell uh, 1000 index rebalanced last week. I guess that was a big, some kind of important uh, thing. I think it was overblown, but yeah. Yeah, I think it was overblown too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the options expiration uh, the other week and, yeah, it's 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 an interesting ride this second half of this month. Um, what are your thoughts, man? Any yeah. ideas? What's it has on? been, and you know, I mean, honestly, in the last week, there there hasn't been a whole lot of macro news. I mean, I think really the like we talked about last week that the big thing was the options expiration the the previous Friday, and and I think the removal of a lot of that um, you know delta dollar you know put exposure. Um, probably led to the rally that we saw last week. And there hasn't really been any any significant news one way or another on, you know, inflation or, or macro, anything really. Um, so to me, it's uh, it was great the rally we got last week. You know, we're given a bit of that back here today. It was kind of interesting, too, the way today started with a, like a decent rally in the morning. And then it all just kind of just slid pretty aggressively throughout the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, my, my sense is, and, and I've been feeling this way for a little while, that, that we're probably not going to have any, you know, strong, sustainable rally up until we get to the point where you've got meaningful information. So whether that's that's macro news like um, inflation for June, which will come out, uh, I think it's in two weeks. I don't, I don't think it's next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for company specific news like Tesla deliveries, which will come out this weekend, um, you know, mm-hmm. then I think we're, we start getting into earnings season. And that's when I think we we could start seeing some uh some real moves because it's been like this huge downfall that we've seen has really been uh, a bit of it was in january but um a, a large chunk of the, of the move uh recently has 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 been just after earnings reports for for most yeah. companies so i think it'll be very interesting to see now that we're you know a little bit into this you know q2 is like the a period when companies were performing in the middle of all this macro uncertainty and so how are they performing then uh, so I think we're going to start to see a little bit more divergence between the companies that are able to weather this storm and, and those that are not. Yeah, I think the, the for sure the earnings will make a big difference as long as there's no major macro market changes. Right now, we're kind of in this period of everyone knows what's going on with the macro market. Interest rates are going up you know, at a certain dot plot schedule. As long as that dot plot doesn't change drastically in the coming month or a couple months, then... Uh, 
you know, it seems like earnings hopefully should help boost the good stocks uh, overall, at least. Um, but I think w- one thing that's interesting is the lower these valuations are coming, um, the, the more you see like buyouts of like we saw the rumor of FTX buying, you know, you know, speculating to, that they're going to consider buying Robinhood, you know, and I think um, Sam Bankman Friedman came out right away and said, like, there's no active merger acquisition talks like he threw some cold water on it. But Bloomberg reported it not out of like nothing, you know, like I think they probably yeah. did have some internal discussions of like, OK, what would it take if we did want to approach Robinhood and buy them? Are we allowed <laughs> to from regulatory? Because they're probably thinking about it, but they probably aren't having active talks, you know. So all these right. valuations, whether it's Robinhood or, you know, all these tech stocks that have been get cut down by 90, 80, 90 percent from, you know, a year ago or whatever, I think a lot of them are attractive buyout targets for, you know, I've seen a few headlines of companies being bought out already, software companies. And um, so if they get cut in half again, imagine just like, you know, how many people, how many firms are going to be trying to buy a lot of these tech firms out and take them off the public markets just because it's such an attractive valuation to get them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, we've been saying this for a while, but that's kind of my main concern with Lemonade as an investment is like, they're basically trading at cash right now. Yeah. And so any company, you know, investment company could buy them out basically just to kill the competition and take the cash. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, you know, you could you could buy the, you know, some of the licenses that they have in states if you wanted to just, you know, be aggressive or just buy them for the technology. So, um, you know, I, I think there's uh, a reasonable chance that you could see an increase in M&A activity where a lot of the incumbents are just kind of scooping up these. You know, yeah. these small companies that are, you know, just trading at a like a billion, two billion dollar range because um, that I mean, that could be a, attractive on a number of ways, you know, whether it's just kind of um, tamping down on on competition that could be coming or whether you want to, you know, just kind of selectively uh, cherry yeah. pick a couple of the assets. I mean, M&A is a great way to do that right now. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It could be a bad, bad news for stocks like. Like yeah. if, if somebody came in right now and offered lemonade like twice the share price, I'm pretty sure they'd have like the shareholders would approve it. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it would about kill me. Be like, no, like, no, so I, would, yeah, here. I know. That's why I think when you have the founder, it's important to have the founder like Rocket Lab. I don't even know they, you know, someone could, you know, they're trading at like 1.8 billion, but they're sending, you know, as we, we're going to talk about later, they sent to, <laughs> a satellite to the moon, you know, like they're, it's on, you know, they're doing tremendous things other than SpaceX as a private company. And they're trading at a valuation of like 1% of what SpaceX is. is <laughs> yeah. So I could imagine, you know, whether it's the ULA or Boeing or someone trying to buy them out. But when you have a founder like Peter Beck, or I think in Lemonade's case, Daniel Shriver and, and, and Shai Winnegar especially those are like the founders i think when you have like founders that are such a heavy, you know such a big part of the company own a, own a large amount of it still i think um there's going to be hopefully a reluctance to sell out even at like a double the valuation price of what if they sold to, you know i would think that they have a longer version longer term vision for their baby their identity their company you know it's not like some ceo hired for a big corporation that's you know owns like less than 0.1 of it and would like just have to do you know like twitter <laughs> you know like the twitter board they had to they, there was no like jack obviously is the founder but he's long gone he has like less than one percent of twitter now and and he's moved on to other things and he'd be happy to have elon take it over but there you know it was just a board of people that have to do what's in the best case in best interest of the shareholders from a monetary perspective there's not like one person that owns you know a large chunk of the company still doing everything day in and day out of the company, like Evan Spiegel of Snapchat, you know, like I think mm-hmm. he, they tried, Facebook tried to buy them, you know, years ago, but he's like the founder and he's like, no, I'm not selling to Facebook and I'm going to do my own thing or whatever. So when you have a founder, I feel like there's a less chance of that buyout happening, but a lot of the companies that don't have like an instrumental founder in place with like a huge chunk of ownership, then uh, they're, they're certainly going to be a lot more takeouts to, to go private or, or just, bought by a bigger tech company yeah yeah for sure so yeah but it's gonna be interesting second half of the year i mean i think you and i've been saying for a while you know the q2 probably could be chopped we don't know whether you know we hit the bottom in april that turned out definitely not to be the bottom and it kept going down from there but um yeah i think now that we've got earnings coming back on and and uh kind of actual tangible news that that companies can or that analysts and investors can start to anchor off of. Uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see kind of uh, where companies go in the second half of the year. So 
Yeah. Uh, good, good riddance to the second quarter, I say. And I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing what's around the corner. <laughs> yeah. Can't be much worse than that. Yeah. Hopefully, knock on wood. Uh, feels like we're just bouncing along the bottom for a while until uh, something takes us back up. So, yeah. So, uh, moving on, I guess. Uh, Tesla, they have their end of you know quarter uh, production and delivery metrics coming out this week, this, this holiday weekend. In the U.S., it's a holiday weekend with Monday being the 4th of July. So, We'll, we'll surely get the numbers before, you know, the first trading day of the month, I would imagine, July 5th. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, we all kind of expect it to be 250,000, 260,000 kind of in that range. Do you, do you still think that? Are you ever, you have, have you seen anything on any of your feeds or any of the things you track, any signal that says it could be more or less, Matt? I mean, nothing nothing is scream, screaming like a huge beat is, is imminent. So, um it does like the, the only thing I can I, I have a little bit of uncertainty about is the kind of um, production rate for the last call it two weeks um, out of Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like I have seen some kind of conflicting reports uh, of, you know, how quickly they've ramped that. There was some mm-hmm. conflicting reports around Berlin, too. But I think even if that was the, the most aggressive scenario, I don't think that would really move the needle too much. Um, so really, I think it's just a matter of how quickly has uh, has. Um, Shanghai ramped back up and and my kind of gut is is that you know the the level heads of of the world you know Troy Tesla obviously in particular has has been kind of staying in the 2 250 255 kind of range for a while so mm-hmm. that's really where I, I think we'll end up you know could we get 260 265 I'm sure but even that I don't think is is going to be like yeah. a huge catalyst for the company I think it's more so you know what's the what's the kind of guidance around you know q3 and specifically like what are the earnings like this is, this is about as bad of a quarter as tesla could have had um yeah so what, what does that look like when you've got the combination of ramping and like the huge furnace of burning cash that, that elon was talking about yeah uh yeah. in combination with with uh, shanghai being down for so long so i'm kind of yeah. curious to see what it all looks like when it's put together because this is a, a noisy quarter for sure yeah my 90 percent confidence is range is 240 to 270. I know it's kind of wide, but 240 to 270 is my 90% confidence. Anything outside of that, I think is like 10% chance. But uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we've been surprised occasionally, but I just don't, I don't see a big surprise on the upside. If anything, maybe a surprise on the downside, but I don't even think it's, I think we know. Yeah. So if, if we're in that range, you know, 240 to 270, do you think the stock reacts one way or another? I mean- nah, not much. No, I think outside that range, you know, if it gets 275 plus, it's positive, very positive reaction on the stock. If it's below 245 or 240, you know, I think the market overreacts on the downside temporarily. You know, if it's below mm-hmm. like 245, even though that's in my conference inter- interval, I think the market could react a little poorly, especially if it's like 235 or below, it would be, you know, potentially more poor of a reaction for one one day you know the stock might drop five percent or something i don't know i think not ten percent for that news alone but yeah i could be wrong you just don't know a lot of it's dependent on the macro market at the time like if the market is macro market's down three percent at the same time as bad news from tesla that would be that would be trouble you know but yeah. uh if it's up you know if the nasdaq's up three percent that day and tesla has terrible report you know it's reporting 235 tesla could be flat that day you, you just don't know mm-hmm you know like the the crazy thing is um like the in q1 we were kind of thinking the number was going to be around 275,000 and they ended up being yeah. you know drastically higher than that like almost yeah. 10 and we're like what how is that how possible? are we so, so off here we are yeah. three months later and it's like oh my gosh like the worst quarter ever i can't believe how bad that quarter was and we're still thinking yeah. 270 is a possibility so yes yeah. <laughs> like it yeah. kind of gives you um like pushing some perspective reinforces how quickly they're they're growing and so yeah we're we're gonna be you know beyond this quarter before too long and we'll be ramping and i mean by q1 q2 next year like that's really what's gonna matter a lot more when you're kind of deep into the ramp of of you know the, these two new plants and austin or and um shanghai is is ramped even further and and fremont's ramped even further so there's just so much good news ahead it's it's kind of like a curiosity this quarter like there's there's so much back and forth like i said but um uh really looking forward like the the long-term growth rate is very hard to ignore so that's kind of what keeps me excited 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Long-term growth rate and the margins are going to, you know, do you think they're going to take a hit this quarter? I mean, the auto gross automotive gross margins because less profitable cars are being produced out of China. It seems like pretty obvious they would be take a hit, but how much of a hit do you think they take? Yeah. So I've been, um, I've been kind of modeling it out. I've been trying to think like, okay, what, what's the relative gross margin out of, um, Fremont and out of Shanghai. And then you, you, I think it's reasonable to bring down the gross margin out of Shanghai this quarter because they've got, you know, lower, lower production. So uh, you've mm -hmm. got both a higher weighting towards the lower margin Fremont plant, plus you've mm -hmm. got lower margins anyways out of Shanghai. And so putting all that together, I think it's going to be at least a 5% gross margin hit, um, mm -hmm. kind of absent any, um, you know, anything to do with FSD or credits. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think it's probably going to be like five to six percent. Um, but I do think there's I've been looking at some signals and, and uh, like I was doing a bunch of Twitter surveys around FSD take rate. And I think it's it's reasonable that there's actually going to be an FSD take rate increase this quarter. So I don't think that's going to, you know, come close to offsetting the, you know, call it five to six percent gross margin hit on on the kind of manufacturing side. But I think that could be mm -hmm. a, a kind of interesting story. And, and I think they're probably going to recognize some incremental deferred revenue out of full self-driving also. So how much do you think the take be... rate went up? What was it before or what, what is it speculated to have been before? And what do you what do you estimate it could go up so, to this quarter? Well, the it's, it's interesting because I think everybody talks about it like a, a take rate. So, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Troy Tess like has, does does like the quarterly thing just based on his surveys. Quick. To define this, this is basically people selecting the option when they when they take delivery of the car to pay the extra twelve thousand upfront for the full self driving cap FSD capability or whatever, right? That's what yep. the take rate, right? So, okay, yep, that's ahead. exactly what I was going to say. So, so basically, like how many cars sold in this quarter? So, if there's two hundred fifty thousand cars, uh, if it's a ten percent take rate, which is kind of where they had been lately, uh, that would mean twenty five thousand sales of FSD, and so then you multiply that by the FSD price, and and that would get you like the cash coming in, but only about half of it is recognizable as income. So there, you know, there's all this this kind of uh, stuff to to contemplate. But you, with with the beta program expanding and, and even Elon like just kind of adding an extra two hundred or an extra one hundred thousand to make it to two hundred thousand uh, U.S. testers, if you look at like the the total like the implications of of what that means regarding like the total. Um, size of the testing pool relative to just U.S. sales. It's a it's a pretty high rate, and then on top of that, a lot of pe people with full self driving like that purchased it in the U.S. still don't have it. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, it got me thinking that the way that we normally think about take rate excludes subscriptions for the most part, because you can yeah. you can have bought your car like a year ago and then just subscribe to it now, and it also yeah. excludes like if you purchase it after the fact. Um, so I think we really need to start changing the way that we think about it and stop thinking of it as a take rate and start thinking of it as like a, you know, the total fleet, what percent of the total fleet, you know, is participating in full self-driving and how does that percentage change over time? Um, mm -hmm. Cause it, mm -hmm. it may be that the the take rate is, is rising on new sales. Um, so let's say that the take rate went to 15% this quarter on new sales. And so that's an increase in take rate. Well, if, like 10% of the fleet also upgraded, which I don't think it would be that that high to be clear. Uh, but that would like may, maybe the math is something like a 2% upgrade rate from the existing fleet is the same as like a 10% change in the quarterly take rate. Mm -hmm. So there's such a larger pool of existing cars out there um, mm -hmm. that like a, a very small change so to how many of them opt to upgrade in a given quarter uh, can have a really big impact on any given quarter's financials. Um, so it's a very long-winded answer, Emmett, but I, I, yeah. I do think um, it's it's going to be a, a decent size rate. So it, maybe next week we'll walk through the model and I can kind of show some of these numbers in, in a bit more detail and maybe we'll run some sensitivities around it. Yeah, yeah. I think we should walk through the model. Next week we'll do a demo on the YouTube live video version. You'll be able to see Matt's model and walk through it a bit after we have the we'll have the uh, more data on the production deliveries. And uh, I see... Um, you know, I do agree that the take rate has increased. I just don't know by what, if it was 10% before, maybe it's 12 or 15% now. I don't know, but I do believe take rate must have 
increased based on all the exposure and publicity FSD beta has been getting, especially with these recent, you know, releases where they open it up to a much more wider audience. Then you can just imagine people buying their Tesla and be like, hey, you know what? I want that because it's coming. I just want to buy it and with that now, you know, so you can imagine an incremental amount of people. You know, it's not everyone, not the majority of people, but instead of 10%, maybe 12 or 15% of people are saying, I want it now. It's a, you know, so I, I, I would imagine it's increasing, um, but we'll have to find out when, when we can try to reverse engineer that number, I guess, when we get their actual earnings report. I see a good comment from uh, my Tesla weekend and Martin Muldoon, by the way, about the margins. They, you know, my Tesla weekend said, you know, the, the price increases won't be realized for at least another quarter or two because they had some more price increases. But Martin mentioned that, you know, they did start raising prices many quarters ago, which is true. And yeah. the wait list was like six months plus at that time. So those price increases didn't really come into are, are going to be realized this quarter, you know, to a large degree. So that'll help offset, you know, that'll help improve gross margins further as well. You would think um, maybe it, I would think, you know, there's inflationary costs, uh, costs that have gone up in terms of like raw materials and stuff. But you got to think these price increases that Tesla has put on have outpaced the inflation cost uh, pressures they've hit. Uh, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I mean, it, it seems given given the backlog that they have, I mean, still a six month wait list. Um, it seems pretty clear to me that um you know the, the price increases have been more kind of demand driven than supply driven now i, I don't think 100 percent of the price increases are going to drop to the bottom line there i mean this is definitely an inflationary environment they're definitely paying mm -hmm. more for lithium and for you know steel and for all the different you know inputs that go into the into the product but um you know i think i mean how i, w I wish i had like a chart of, of like you know, for a given Model Y configuration, like how much it's, it's gone up over the last couple of months, but it's been it's been like pretty drastic how how significantly the increases have, yeah, um, you know, been been laid in. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I do think it's going to be you know positive for gross margins overall, and I would yeah. expect ASPs continue to increase. Yeah, and I see Tesla Economics, one of my favorite Twitter handles for Tesla stuff in the YouTube comments saying, I'd like to echo what he says, which is many new Tesla investors are beginning to understand that investing in Tesla is not an easy game. <laughs> yes, I think uh, they should have hopefully have been un understanding that for the uh, last six months or so, but by by, by now, surely they uh, it's been imprinted on their P&L to understand that, you know, <laughs> Tesla is not easy. Um you know, it's, it's better. It's good. It's just growing so fast. And so there's so many businesses within it. It's a conglomerate, you know, really keep your conviction in these trying times with the macro market and Tesla down, you know, 40%, 50% of its all time high or whatever. I think at the low it was down like 50% from its all time. You know, to have that conviction to not sell, like you can't just be like a, you know, you know, a, a whimsy investor, like, oh, I'll buy this. Everyone's telling me to buy that because then you'll probably sell on the way down, you know, and you'll yeah. miss out on the upside later. So, the, the more conviction you can get um, and by studying all the businesses within the conglomerate that Tesla is, the better. And I think you can get a lot of conviction also talking to bears. I know this has been a hot topic lately in our Twitter threads and stuff, <laughs> but talking to bears, I think, and, and listening to the bears, as difficult as it may feel like to be at some points, like if you can kind of listen to them. And if you think they make a good point, then you'd research like crazy and with the bullish side, or, you know, all your resources you have, like, why is that wrong? Why is that wrong? You know, you know who to go to for accounting issues or who to go to for battery specialty stuff or whatever, you know, different YouTube channels. And you could every time I've done that, I've always found counter arguments to whatever any bear said. And that helps bolster my conviction, you know, but it, it, just knowing that I can do that gives me more conviction. Like we've been talking to that guy, Drew Dixon, who we had on our recorded interview. He's, um, he's a great open-minded bear. He's, he's phenomenal. He's great. Yeah. And I want to get more bears. When you talk face to face, you know, on a virtual meeting, it's much more polite. People are an adults, you know, like when you're spatting over Twitter, people get upset and troll each other. It just gets out of hand quickly. But I think any Tesla bear, if you talk to them face to face, especially if you bring like charity into the equation, you know, how, how can people be mean to each other? You know, we're going to be respectful to each other's faces, <laughs> I think, you know, and and the guy Drew has been great. And um, just over the weekend, he sent us some he, he spent a lot of time and effort. He's a very smart guy and knows the business very well. And he spent a lot of time diving into the NHTSA crash testing 
um, data. And so engaging with Drew has turned into be like an asset to my conviction of Tesla because he's actually done some extra work. Someone who's very skeptical of Tesla has done a ton of extra work on NHTSA crash testing, trying to figure out is Tesla really the safest car or is it just a bunch of, you know, um, Tesla bulls being biased about, about it or whatever. And he came back to us with data showing that, yeah, Tesla indeed, the Model Y indeed is far the safest car, according to all of NHTSA's reporting from their website. It was really impressive. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, you know, re regardless of your view on, on Tesla, I mean, just a, as an investor, I think that's the kind of mindset that you want to have. Like, you know, we've been very, very critical of Rivian, for example, on this channel before. And so, you know, I think like mm -hmm. it's a very good idea for us to, of, of any uh, company that we're either long or short, you know, seek the opposite view of yours and, and try to see, like, you know, disprove the core of their thesis or or to just see if, if it's actually true and then you know change your mind so but the whole idea should be trying trying to uncover the truth and not just you know trying to you know like i, I know i've been accused a lot of times of like you're just a tesla bull trying to pump the stock and i'm like well yeah. no like <laughs> i actually just want to like find what the truth is and have yeah. like that moderate view because i think that that's ultimately what you want to have you want to try to get to the truth uh, faster than the rest of the market so that you can kind of take advantage of, um, yeah. you know, what's around the corner. So yeah. yeah, he, no, he's been a phenomenal, um, you know, uh, data source for us, but also I think just a, a kind of model of whatever every investor should be trying to do with, with any stock that they're interested in. Yeah. Yeah. I see a good comment from Doge nation saying some of the bears have zero track record, especially he who should not be named who graduated from college in 2018 and comes from a super rich family, hardly an expert. So, you know, you could, you could say that about any bear. I mean, people make that speculation about almost any bear, like you, but let's talk to them. And we had that person on our channel and we talked to them and you can see by talking to them, like shine a light on it so that everyone can see and make the, the case for themselves. People are smart. No one's going to be fooled. If that's the case, if the person really is not an expert and really is just full of it and they're just, you know, spouting nonsense, people are smart enough to see that when you talk to them and engage with them. You know, like I remember Rob Maurer did a really interesting thing just like this with, with Gordon Johnson, like a couple years ago. And I thought that was awesome. And you could see that Gordon Johnson just talked over him and not, it was like a debate. It was like the first, one that I saw like that. It was great. It gave me, it was like, I thought that was awesome. I hope Rob does more of those types of things because it let everyone see how much of a, of a jerk Gordon is yeah. just talking over his uh, Rob constantly and just pushing out his bullet points. Let people can judge that. You don't have to tell people yeah. before they get a chance to judge it. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a really eye opening interview for me. And I remember like, it took me like hours. Cause I was just so, I was like, he's like such a jerk like he just yeah, keeps talking yeah. over rob and like screaming yeah. and he's not actually interested in listening to anything rob has like i remember at one point like he's like oh you don't even know what deferred revenue is rob and rob's like well yes i do <laughs> like like you know he gave the definition and he was just like no that's wrong and i was like yeah oh, no yeah. that that actually was the correct definition you just wanted to take it somewhere else and so it's just like it's very yeah. revealing, I think, when when you can have a kind of long form interview with someone, you can kind of see, all right, are they are they just, you know, trying to win the argument or are they interested in uncovering the truth or, you know, or are they just not as expert as maybe they think they are and they, they kind of uh, convey themselves to be. So, no, I yeah. agree with you. I mean, I think we want to try to do do more of those, you know, uh, going forward. We've got a couple, you know, on the bull side coming up as well. We, we don't want to only be like a bull bear debate kind of channel going forward, but uh, we're yeah. going to have a, a lot of kind of diverging views going forward. Yeah. And that's healthy. And it's not going to be just like you said, we had some bulls on for Rivian and we're kind of bearish on Rivian. We wanted to hear their case and maybe we'll find some bulls for like lucid or other stocks that we don't like, like, Robin Hood or whatever. It's a funny story. We try to, you know, we have this basket of short stocks. It's like we 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 put it on our fund occasionally when we think the market's going up a few percent. We're like, oh, let's put it on this, you know, ten stocks we think we're bearish on, and and uh, we're like, oh, Robin Hood. Let's put that in the equation again. Yesterday or whatever, we were adding to it, and and then sure enough, like after like literally five minutes after we put a little, it's just a small tiny adding to our basket of shorts. We put on the Robin Hood. Five minutes later, the stock pops a dollar fifty, and it's halted, and it's because of this freaking Bloomberg report about, you know. So you know, it's just it's funny when you short a stock too. You get a different, almost like a completely different mindset on things. Like, you know, you just you're rooting for the stock to go down in a way which is not necessarily great, but uh, 
you're also trying to just pull the covers on businesses that you think are, are not worth what they're giving, being given a value on. And um, that was a crazy, you know, whenever you short something or you go against a stock, there's, there's certainly danger. Even if this, even if you still think the business is worthless, you know, someone could buy them out for, you know, you know, 50% more higher than the valuation is at, at that time, at any time in this environment. And you just don't never know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why we, we like to do shorting really just as a macro hedge and not as a, yes. you know, necessarily sort of, like, you know, you're not going to bet the fund that, you know, Rivian or Lucid is going to go down to zero. Like that's, that's not a, a good way to get kind of long-term outperformance, but yeah, uh, just yeah. as a hedge for the rest of the portfolio, we, we think that's a yeah. good thing to do. And you're kind of taking the spread on companies you think are going to perform well and, and companies that are not in an environment yeah. where they both have been hit. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I do it in a basket. We don't concentrate on one or two names typically for that type of thing. It's a larger yeah. basket and it's not a big percentage. It's just sort of a short-term hedge typically. So, okay. Moving on to Elon. Where the heck is Elon? I keep thinking of that. that remember, <laughs> you ever play that video game when you were a kid where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Yeah, well, I'm thinking that. like where in the world is Elon Musk, <laughs> but where in the Twitter world is Elon Musk? Like he's disappeared for almost a week straight now. And I went on to his, I, you know, every few days I go, that's one of the first things I do in the morning when I, when I look at my Twitter and I want to see what's going on is I search Elon Musk. What has he tweeted and what are his tweet replies the last, you know, 12 hours or 15 hours since I looked at Twitter last or whatever, because you can get some really interesting, important information from him. If he's saying like next release is going to be FSD beta for everyone in the world, or who knows what he's going to come up with, right? It's going to be like, yeah. so you always, I always search that. And the last week it's been zeros on that. And also uh, his likes, I sometimes have gone to his likes just to see what he's liked because maybe there you can find information and in what he's liked versus, you know, if, if there's something unique there and he hasn't liked anything in, in five or six days now either which to me signals he hasn't gone on Twitter whatsoever because if he's using Twitter, he typically, you know, is consuming it. And I would think he's still, even if he's not feeling like he wants to say anything, I would think he'd still hit the like button occasionally on something he likes that he finds interesting, you know? So to me, I'm kind of in the boat that he's just not using Twitter whatsoever for the last six days. Um, and, and what does that mean? What, what do you think, man? What are your thoughts? Do you think that's the case? And if so, what do you think it means? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying not to read into it too much. Um, you know, the the first thing that kind of popped into my mind when this showed up a, a few days ago was, um, you know, just that the, the Twitter deal is kind of in a very critical phase right now where they're mm -hmm. presumably digesting some of this bot information. And just to avoid the potential of lawsuits, it, it may be a good idea just for Elon to like say, you know, I could imagine like his advisor on the deal just saying, hey, listen, you get extremely confidential information here. You've already really upset Twitter with the way that you've like very publicly criticized them. But it's not, if you want to get this done, don't jeopardize it by like tweeting out confidential like material information uh, that you know on the deal. And so like best thing for you to do, Elon, is just put the phone away until we get over XYZ hurdle in the deal. So mm -hmm. that to me seems like a reasonable thing that could be going on, but you know, it's also end of quarter and it's also, um, you know, I've taken breaks from Twitter in the past. I mean, I, I gave up Twitter for Lent a couple of years ago and that was like a really nice experience for me just to be like, Oh, you wow. know, it's actually kind of nice to, to get away from Twitter for a yeah, while. Yeah. It just becomes yeah. a habit where you're checking it too much. And so I could see it being something similar for him in a, in a small way. So I personally am not at all worried about it. I mean, there was the the news that John Kreider had seen him. I think it was two days ago now. Um, yeah. He was fine. So I, yeah. I'm not reading too much into it, to be honest. But what do you what do you think? I mean, yeah, I don't think there's any health issue. Thank goodness. Knock on wood. Um, I would think we would know about it by now if there was some health issue or something. I think it has to do with the Twitter deal like you. Um, I think it's either one of two things. Uh, well, I, I think it's probably one thing really. So I think it's the fact that it's another almost negotiating passive negotiating point with Twitter. Like things are, the stakes are high at this moment in time with the Twitter negotiation. They're trying to, he's trying to strong arm them for a better valuation. And, you know, this is a tool like, all right, I'm, I'm walking away. Like he's just like, I'm not going to even use Twitter anymore, basically. Like, that's what he's sign signaling to him. People on Twitter are going to see, like, hey, Elon hasn't been on for six days. What's going on? And they're going to talk to the board about, it. like, what does this mean? Like, is he really, what is Twitter, you know, Elon is a principled person. If if he's walked away, he's not going to use us ever again. And we better, you know, panic and agree to his lower valuation or whatever. You know, so I feel like there could be something there, like with a, you know, a negotiating tactic. Yeah. But maybe it's sense. like a, 
not even just to not that Elon's pretending either. Like Elon could be fully serious about this tactic. Like if I am going to walk away from this, I'm going to stop using Twitter right now and not give them any more of my value and just folk, you know, I'll, I'll create my own platform because they're not going to come down in their valuation to what I want it to be. So I could see that happening being the case. And we wouldn't find that out until news of the Twitter deer falling apart happens. And that could be, you know, a week from now, it could be weeks from now, or a month from now. And uh, if that happens, it would make sense, I think, to everyone at that point and be like, oh, that's why Elon stopped using Twitter starting June 22nd, because that's when the deal started falling apart, you know? So that's what I think I, I kind of fear, because I want the deal to work out. But I think Elon can make it a lot better. Um, it would be sad if he had to walk away from the deal and it doesn't work out. Then, you know, I don't know what, what's going to be happen with Twitter at that point. Yeah, so. it wouldn't be the worst thing in my mind, though, if he... Uh started buying some Tesla with that liquidity that he had again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mind seeing that. Yeah. That'd be nice. That would certainly be nice. And, and I do think Elon, like he, maybe it could be the case, like you're saying, like his lawyers are like, listen, Elon, we can't have you using Twitter with your handle for the next two weeks while we're at this critical juncture, you know, like, if you want create a burner account, no one knows and you can consume data that way, but don't let anyone know who you are, that kind of thing. And maybe Elon still is using Twitter, but just consuming it and not yeah. tweeting anything out, you know? So that could be the case too. Um, yeah. We'll see. Yeah, I, I, I kind of thought he might come like when he, he just hit a hundred million followers yesterday and I thought he, he might have like some sort of, you know, meme fest meme. or something at, yeah. at, at that but that that wasn't the issue so i don't know no we'll we'll see what happens but i'm i'm personally not too concerned about it i don't think it's necessarily anything kind of material for you know the twitter deal or or anything but uh it's certainly possible so uh kind of yeah. curious to see what what happens yeah yeah so the last thing we want to touch on you know the other stocks we talk about and we follow a lot are lemonade rocket lab and Roblox and um, Rocket Lab just had an, its most impressive impressive mission ever early this morning. Launched from New Zealand, the Capstone mission, where they're sending uh, a satellite to to the moon. Um, this is pretty impressive. I mean, uh, it, it all, all all signs of success point. You know, it seems like a very successful mission so far. I mean, it's going to be a few days of orbiting Earth before I think in five days it gets shot off to go to towards the lunar orbit, <laughs> which will take a few months to get there or something. So uh, what are your, what are your thoughts, Matt? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of crazy because you think of like moon missions and it's like, all right, well, you need a Falcon heavy or you need a Saturn five or you need a starship to get yeah. there because they're so far away. Um, so like, it's kind of crazy to think that the, the electron, which is much smaller than even the Falcon nine can uh, do a moon mission, but obviously it's a, it's a very light payload, but the, the really interesting thing with this mission is that they've got a very unique uh, orbit that they're trying to do. And so, yeah, they, they launched this morning and they're essentially, uh, the mission is not even close to complete yet, as, as you alluded to. I mean, they're um, essentially doing all these um, intermittent burns on their kick stage engine, uh, which is like, it's essentially like a, a very small third stage. Um, so the, the way that they describe this orbit on, on the launch is it's, it's a, like this theoretical orbit that's very hard to do. They said it's kind of like trying to balance a, a pencil on its head. It's like uh, it, you can do it in theory, but it's very hard to do it in practice. Um, and so they're they're doing this, you know, these series of burns where, you know, when they get to the apogee of their of, of the orbit, they burn a little bit to get closer to the moon. And then eventually, you know, on one of those, they're going to you know give a, a final burn to kind of do this lunar insertion orbit and. It's, it's really crazy because it's like the least energy efficient way to get to the moon or sorry, it's the most energy efficient way to get to the moon, um, which for doing a lot of um, uh, like if we want to have a moon base going forward, it's like we want to use that that type of uh, orbit for uh, hmm. things that don't need to get there in a, in a very quick amount of time. So I'm yeah. I'm super excited about it. and the fact that, you know, that when they Peter Beck was tweeting a couple of days ago that this was by far their most technical mission to date. Um, and for everything to be going so smoothly so far is a, is a really good sign. So yeah, I'm yeah. just super encouraged by the fact that they were able to handle a, a very technically complicated launch like this and do something that's never been done before. So yeah. did you, have, did you have a chance to watch it or, uh, I did not watch other? the launch. No, I just caught early. up on all the news headlines about it, all the up-to-date news headlines on it. And, uh, just so people know rocket lab, we've been big on rocket lab for, we've been buying up 
Rocket Lab for, in our fund for about a year. I think we went public with it last September, you know, but uh, we've been, we first encountered it because we're huge Tesla fans and, and SpaceX fans, obviously. And we spent a lot of our time researching Tesla and SpaceX. And by researching SpaceX, you find out what other players are in the industry, right? And there's a whole lot of space companies out there and a lot of them that seem to be very exciting, but something really stuck out to us about Rocket Lab and it still sticks out to us. And we really dove deeper into it and it just made sense because it's the only other private company sending things to lower earth orbit consistently in any way, shape or form. Um, so it seems to be, that's the, that's, that's the real, you know, point to break in, in, you know, if you could send things to lower earth orbit, you know, that's, the, that's the hard thing to do. And, and only SpaceX and rocket lab are doing that and have been doing that for years now. So it seems like to us, uh, rocket lab is a second place to space. It's, it, it's clear distant second place to se SpaceX, but it's a clear distant second place. And what, what should that warrant in terms of valuation we think, right? So SpaceX gets 125 billion valuation rocket lab. What should that be then? Right. And right now it's a trading net, like a, less than $2 billion valuation. You know, when we first started covering, I think it was like four or 5 billion valuation. And we thought that was still a good deal. So um, we'll just see how it plays out over time. It's a long-term play that stock. So let's go on to uh, Q and a, I guess, unless there's anything else you wanted to say about any of that, Matt, we'll just go on to Q and a for the next 20 minutes. Yeah, let's do Q and a. All right. So Q and a from Ben Toski on Twitter. Now that you've been working together for a year, what's the most important thing you learned from each other? Uh, we have been working together for almost 18, like more than a year, like I would say 16, 16, 17 months, 16 or 17 months now, actually. So, yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot from Matt. Uh, I would say, um, you know, Matt has a different view on certain things uh, than I do. And it's good to, you know, like just have someone else who's sensible to bounce ideas off of is sometimes I am overreacting on something or a little crazy too far in the weeds on something like thinking a certain way. And Matt's very sensible and, and can bring me back to like, Hey, maybe you're seeing things a little too different here or, you know, that's possible or, you know, and, and um, it's just, so I trust him and his, his intuition on a lot of uh, things. And, and he's definitely much more quantitative than me in terms of uh, the accounting and the and the modeling and such, and so it's great to have that backbone of our uh, investment thesis as, as well. So, yeah, I've learned a lot. Um, I don't know, Matt. You want to? Yeah, I, I would say you know I'm I'm very quantitative, but I can tend to be too quantitative sometimes, which I think is why it took me so long to wrap my head around Tesla as an investment, for example. I mean. I, uh, it took me much longer than you to realize that Tesla was so disruptive. I, I got so caught up on their cash burn and, you know, a lot of the, the financial metrics that didn't look so good that it, it just, you know, I, I miss out on a, a pretty good investment opportunity earlier on. Um, but, you know, as we've been looking at other companies to invest in, a lot of times I'll get excited. Like there was this company uh, called Planet Labs that I really liked because they were doing a lot of the same <laughs> stuff of, as, uh, as Rocket Lab, not on the launch side, but on like the providing Earth services, which is ultimately what Rocket Lab wants to do. And I was looking at their financial metrics and like all their valuation metrics looked better than than Rocket Labs. And I was like, oh, like, Emmett, look at this. It's like, it's like Rocket Lab, but better. And he's like, well, <laughs> I remember the founder. I was like, oh, I know nothing about their founder. He's like, well, why don't you like, let's make sure that this is like actually a, a like a uh, entrepreneur and, and uh, that that you can believe in before we you know just start looking at only at the financial metrics. So that that's been something that's been really great to to work with you, Emmett. Is is just your ability to kind of see the bigger picture aside from just like the metrics. Because if you're if you're looking at metrics which are backward looking, uh, you're you're not going to see necessarily what's coming around the corner. So uh, you you always do a really good job of kind of reminding me to, to look forward and not just backward. Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah. And Planet Lab, I mean, it's performed about the same as Rocket Lab since that time. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm right or not, but I don't I still don't I don't still don't know much about the founding. You know, there's a whole conglomerate <laughs> of people in that committee. I think we learned it's not just like one person. It's a little crazy. It's like, I don't know. Interesting story. But the, yeah, that's a good story. Thanks. Um, let's go to the next question here. From Nick Vladikis on Twitter, congrats on the first anniversary. Has your view changed on Lemonade? That's a good question. I think our 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 views of Lemonade have changed in some ways. Um, in some ways, that I think it's more car insurance centric, I think, um, especially with the Metro Mile deal. 
And I think uh, it's sort of bolstered our hopes, our, our you know, probabilities of a successful car insurance uh, rollout over time with Lemonade. Um, and, and that's important in this environment, I think. Uh, you know, it's almost made me personally think all the other stuff Lemonade does doesn't really matter. It's really all about the insurance. And, you know, that's sort of my view has changed to be that versus, you know, Lemonade being like an all-encompassing insurance provider of all different types, you know. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I think a year ago when, you know, it was trading at a, a much higher price, I, I think we were a little bit more abstract in our thinking about it, to be honest with you, which was, you know, probably a good lesson to, to have learned, painful lesson. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, we were just thinking, okay, well, look, the insurance opportunity is so big and they're, they're clearly disrupting. So, um, you know, they've got a lot of market cap they can essentially eat. Um, but I think that was probably pricing in a little bit too much, you know, execution risk. Um, you know, with where we are right now, though, um, I think it's, it's forced us to become very specific on what we think the near term opportunity is. Um, and so we've tried to do that very neutrally, but like several times we've gone back and said, OK, like, should we sell? The market's clearly, you know, saying that, you know, they're they're overvalued. Um, but the more we've dug into it, the more we've actually been convinced that there's a, a very strong kind of um, upside move that that could pan out here in a potentially relatively short amount of time. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think our our views have matured, I would say, on, on Lemonade. Um, but I think my conviction, at least, has, has continued to grow. Um, they, they have a lot of execution they still need to do, to be clear. Like they, they have to continue to grow in force premium and revenue per customer and, and all that. And they need to kind of get a hold on, on um, their operating costs, which, which I think they, they should be doing this year. Um, but we should know in a year or two whether, whether we're right. And I have a sense if we're right, like this thing could be, could be a rocket ship going, going the other way before we know it. But uh, not investment yeah. advice, uh, just kind of our, our view right yeah. now. But you know, he, I don't mean to drone on on this point, but like this is another thing talking about founders that's so important. Like you hear the founders on the on this call, and like they don't really seem too bothered by like the like the wild share price swings. Like they're yeah always talking about how they're executing, and they're like, yeah, you know what, we're down eighty percent or whatever they are from the high. But uh, what we really care about is executing, and we, we are executing. And they say, here's why X Y Z, and and they're right. Like they are executing. Um, yeah. And so are. it's a matter of, of how long it takes for the market to, to see that. And, you know, I, I think it's been a little bit disconcerting to some shorter term investors to, to see their loss ratios right now. But as I've said many times, I think that is 100 percent the wrong metric to look at at this point in their in their maturity. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the way I think about Lemonade is a perfect case study of a binary outcome stock, sort of like Tesla yep. was, you know, like Tesla turned out to be, I turned out to be right. Or a lot of bulls were right. And so the binary outcome on that was like explosive and Lemonade, yep. if the, if the bulls on Lemonade turn out to be right, the outcome will be explosive. Right. But if the bulls are wrong, then Lemonade just dwindles away slowly, gets bought for maybe a valuation a little bit less than what it is now after it's burned more cash or something, you know? So, you know, at this point, it just seems very attractive as a binary play to us, especially, you know, I could talk myself into like putting all my eggs into Lemonade Basket almost <laughs> just, just for that reason. But but there's a, I, I'm, I'm biased. I know I'm biased. So I got to say, okay, in my mind, there's like a, 60, 40% chance I'm right or 50, 50% chance. So I don't want to risk everything on that, you know, you know, 40% chance I could be completely wrong about lemonade. And then it just doesn't seem to, the technology doesn't seem to do anything or it's just too cost prohibitive and no one's getting into car insurance and they just, you know, so I don't, I, it's a binary, binary outcome is the way to think about lemonade for sure. There's just no one else doing what they're doing in my mind uh, from an insurance vertical integration point of view kind of thing in terms of technology and no agents, just a whole different business model, you know? So yeah, we'll see. So let's go to the next question. From Pinnick 075 or some numbers on Twitter, GigaPress supplier is Idra. Can Idra supply to Tesla's competitors, making sure that this is an advantage for Tesla? I think Volvo or someone already has placed an order for an Idra. I read a report a while back, like a month or two, a few months ago, Tesla Roddy or someone reported on it, or it was maybe it was in a podcast or something. But I think Volvo 
or Volkswagen, I think it was Volvo though, placed an order with Idra and they're like the next Idra confirmed, like they're the, ne they're the only other person to place an order so far. And it's like a three year or two or three year, they'll get delivery of it. Cause you have to like this, this giga press is like, it takes a year or a couple of years to like build and process or I don't know, it takes a while. So there's certainly a, a lead for Tesla with it in terms of at least a couple of years. Um, any thoughts, Matt? Yeah, Brian from uh, Next Big Future in the comments says that Chinese EV makers are are making uh, Idra orders. So mm. um, yeah, that, yes. that, I, don't, I don't think there's necessarily anything you know like an exclusivity kind of agreement with with Tesla, um, but I, I don't think there there necessarily needs to be either. I mean, this is like one of the things talking to um, you know Drew Dixon and and I was talking to to Brad Munchen recently, who's uh, Got a, he's a very vocal Twitter, uh, Tesla Twitter critic, um, you know, and, and they're kind of of this view that like, oh, all, all these other OEMs are coming and it's just a matter of time before they they eat Tesla's lunch because they're starting to, you know, implement the playbook now. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I'm just thinking like they don't have the demand, anything close to what, what Tesla has. And they don't have like if they're starting to order things from Idra now, it's like, all right, well, you're like five years behind at least. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I know Tesla's not gonna be hundred percent market share. Like that's, that's crazy, but um, I, I'm just less concerned with competition coming and, and kind of yeah. uh, taking stuff away from Tesla. I mean, the, the more I kind of hear that argument, I'm like, well, show me the proof. Like, like I'm actually, yeah. I'm like dying for the Ultium teardown uh, <laughs> that, that um, those guys, yeah. uh, oh, what's his name? Well, oh, yeah. Sandy Monroe. Sandy Monroe. Yeah, they're gonna do an ultimate whenever they can get their hands on one. Because like, which will probably never, been, like, we'll probably never get their hands on it. forever. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't. It doesn't sound yeah. like the best platform to me, but I could be wrong. So I don't, yeah. I, don't know. I mean, Something how fast? Yeah, I mean, Tesla is innovating. Um, and the the, the Idra Press. Elon gave his story in like I think one of those uh, recent interviews with Silicon Valley about the Idra Press and how he called up a bunch of places and they're like, no, we can't do it. We can't. And they found one person that's like, maybe we could do it. And he's like, you're doing it. And it was the Idra <laughs> yeah. people or whatever. And so like Tesla is so far thinking out of the box in terms of innovation compared to any other company out there. Like they were the first one to make a cool EV. Right now everyone's catching up. They're the first one to do over the air updates. People can't even catch up to that. You know, they're the first one to do manufacturing with the Idra press and like by, you know, no one else would have ever dared to do that. And people are trying to play catch up, you know? And so like everything Tesla's doing, people are copying, but they don't even copy it as well as Tesla's doing it. And it takes years for them to copy it. You know, China, the China EVs are the closest and the best at, at copying Tesla in a lot of ways. And they have like a substantial market share in China, of course. Right. And they're going to be mm -hmm. the biggest competitors, I think, instead of outside of Tesla in terms of EVs of the future. So We'll just see everything else is just like marketing and GM and Ford and Volkswagen, yeah. you know, it's a lot of marketing gimmicks and announcements and such. And we're going to build this factory. I've heard all these announcements years ago. We're going to build this EV factory in Norway. You know, like none of this has ever really matriculated much. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, uh, do you remember that picture that, that uh, kind of went viral a couple of years ago about like the Ford supercharger? And it was like the same design as Tesla's, except they made oh. like this, the string too long. So like, you know, Tesla's superchargers, <laughs> like, they've got the nice hole and then it loops right in there. So, like, you can yeah. hold, hold it in like that. But, like, Tesla or Ford did one and they made the cord, like, two feet too long. So, it was just, like, looping out, out of the space <laughs> and the thing. And it's, like, somebody tweeted this this comment, like, good job, Ford. You you completely copied Tesla's design and, like, still effed it up. And I was, like, yes, yeah. it's, it's so true. It's, like. It is true. Like yeah, you're, yeah. You're not even copying well. So yeah, the know, supercharger like, network, they can't even do that right. You know, like you have they're trying to outsource it to third parties, which is a disaster. You know, Electrify America just got like a 2.5 billion valuation. Is that even a stock yet? Can I short that? I want to short these things. <laughs> it's freaking crazy. So um the third party supercharger networks are a disaster and a half uh in my mind. It's just oh my gosh. Anyway, I can go on. Let's go on to the next question. From DanMac51 on Twitter, will you do an update interview on the space industry with the Terran Space Academy team? Oh, that was really good. Yeah, that was a good um, interview we did a while back, Roundtable. Uh, we should do an, a part to, another part to that soon, maybe with updates on what SpaceX is up to and, and Rocket Lab and other players. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, no, that, that would be good. It's been... Um... I mean, there has been a whole lot of developments on on Rocket Lab's front lately. I mean, you know, they're yeah. they're 
kind of in the middle of a, of a big update, but um, I know a lot of other companies have, have been working on on some updates. So yeah, well, I think we'll, we'll definitely do some more at, at some point. Um, what, what we have found just kind of anecdotally is that there's definitely much less interest on the other names in our portfolio other than Tesla. Yeah. Uh, so, so we'll keep yeah. doing those, but I, I think there's there's just generally going to be less interest on anything yeah. that we do that's specific to Roblox, Lemonade, or Rocket Lab. But that's fine. Yeah. We don't. That's fine. The uh, yeah, adulation or or the the views. That's that's not really why yeah. we're doing this. Yeah. All right, from Evan Glansman on the YouTube comments, question, thoughts on Michael Burry now flipping to believing there will be a bull whip later in 2022 due to inventories building and causing deflationary pressures, causing the Fed to pivot. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Michael Burry, he's an interesting guy. Um, he's very abstract. You know, he's wrong a lot. He's been right a couple times. Uh, he sees the world differently. He's definitely, I think he's probably... Uh, it makes sense. I mean, this is something a lot of this is something sort of Kathy Wood has been saying too. She he's just saying a different language using the word bullwhip or whatever. But I think you know a lot of people are recalling that the Fed's going to reverse course sooner or later, seeing deflationary pressures coming in. You know, Matt and I think that's very. Uh, I don't know if it's probable, but it's close to maybe it is close to probable. But we both think it's a realistic scenario that could play out later this year. You have any thoughts, Matt? Yeah. So I, I hadn't seen that he actually had changed his stance on that that's i mean that's a pretty remarkable you know about face um so but like this this part of kathy wood's thesis to me makes the most sense like I, i'm not sure that there's necessarily going to be a decrease in energy pricing um you know with with oil prices where they are and i'm sorry if you can hear screaming kids in the background it's a little chaotic it's okay here, but um um you know, I, I do think a lot of other uh, we're already seeing com other commodities r really fall in price, you know, like lumberwood, a lot of like wheat, even which was a big concern with the Ukraine crisis. That's come to come down quite a bit in in, in price lately. Um, and so I think you're, you're seeing a lot of these deflationary forces already start to bear in like with inventory levels the way they were for a lot of these big retailers like that has to be a deflationary force. Now, maybe it's not widespread enough to. Um, really move the needle on Fed policy on its own. But I think in, in conjunction with all these other forces that we're starting to see, um, to me, this, this is the case that makes the most sense uh, as I'm kind of piecing together all the different moving pieces of, of the macro environment right now. So um, for Michael Burry to essentially be agreeing with Kathy Wood on, on this piece, to me, that's a that's kind of good news because I, I respect yeah. them both. Uh, yeah. and, and for them to be agreeing and on this part of it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I have a hard time with Michael Burry just because he has been so like anti or short, like th th that's such a good litmus test for, for us. I think is that like someone that is like sophisticated enough to really make a, a like, not just that he's been, but like Michael Burry is very vocal about a short position on Tesla. Like people that are like, not just saying, I don't understand Tesla. I wouldn't buy it, but you're saying like, I'm shorting it. This thing isn't worth anything close to what it is. It's, although, you know, it'd be so wrong on that to me as a litmus test that maybe I shouldn't be trusting anything else this guy's saying, you know? So <laughs> I, I don't know if I respect Michael Burry's investment um, decision-making because of that, to be honest, but uh, he could be right. And, and just because he's right, doesn't mean I, I can't agree with the, the uh, conclusion that, you know, that, but, as well you know but not because of him though but because i think it's the right thing yeah yeah i mean i i always think it's good to like assess the the validity of individual ideas and so like i always think back of that scene in the big short where you know that he's like nobody's short housing like how did you like how did you even like uh, come up with these figures and he's like well i read all these like 200 page contracts i i actually dug into the details and i read them and that like <laughs> that's really true. stuck in my mind is like the right thing to do but when he's talking about Tesla, like I, I've really dug into all this stuff about Tesla and he's always doing like this really kind of like high level comparison, like automotive cops analysis. And he's like, you know, auto companies traded like an EBITDA of four and Tesla's like trading at like 50 or whatever. So therefore yeah. it's overvalued. And I'm like, you're doing the exact opposite of what made you so much money back in 08. And so, <laughs> uh, I just find it funny yeah. that like somebody who's so competent in like digging into the details can kind of make the same the mistake of not digging into the details on something that yeah. just you know seems like it should be overvalued. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, good point. 
from Mark Gomez to Hara on, on YouTube. When Tesla will start? When will Tesla start to repurchase shares? Maybe when Austin and Berlin ramp up. If Fremont and Shanghai produce nearly twenty billion in cash, what can Tesla do with over forty billion per year? That's a great question. Um, I think a lot of folks are speculating that you know Tesla is going to be so cash rich. Uh, we've been speculating this uh, too. That you know. I think a lot of people are wondering what's going to happen with Tesla. Even Pierre Farragou, I think, asked on the last quarterly earnings call, was kind of laughed at. Uh, I think they were laughed because they they know it's like funny but serious, but they didn't. They wanted to laugh like as a joke. Like, are you kidding me? We got to figure out how to not have inflation lose our money from that. Or, I don't know. Elon came with some backhanded like comment like that or something. But I think it's a real thing. In a, a year or two, they're going to be producing so much cash. What are they going to do with it all? They can't make. They can't build five gigafactories a year, you know, like what are they going to yeah. do with all this cash, you know, and buying back shares seems to be something that makes sense to, to me. Um, you know, once they get over like 50 or 100 billion of cash reserves, what do they do? Right. Are they going to just buy Bitcoin? Are they going to I don't know. What, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, a couple months ago, I, I was probably more supportive of a, of a share buyback than I am right now. Um, I, I think. Mm -hmm. There's still so much uncertainty with with macro and you know Elon's kind of comments about how much cash they're burning at these you know at these two new factories. So I, I kind of think we're we're not going to see a share buyback you know at, at least this year. Um, but you know if we we get to maybe the end of 2023 and they've built up a little bit more cash and um, basically I, I think what Tesla wants to do is get to the point where it's like very clear that they've got. Um, more operating cash flow on a sustainable basis than they need to have their very aggressive, you know, like insane ramp that whatever they're calling it with their master plan part three, where they're they're trying to ramp up like huge amounts of like raw materials purchases and and maybe even opening mines and all the stuff that they need to do to to reach insane scale. Um, I think they don't want to risk having the cash that they need to achieve that kind of. A, a very difficult goal uh, while also being able to survive, um, you know, in the event that uh, macro deteriorates and maybe they need to cut prices on their cars and their operating cash flow maybe isn't as strong as it is it uh, had been in the past. So I think they're just going to be conservative. I don't think Elon has any desire to kind of hit up the capital markets again. Um, so um, while 20 billion seems like a ridiculously huge amount of cash, given the, the free cash flow that they're generating, I, I just kind of sense that they're going to be conservative with their, um, you know, financial policy, given how aggressive they're going to be on their, their kind of CapEx plan going forward. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's do one more question. We're about a little over an hour now. So last question is from Eric Dahl on YouTube. Do you think re-offering enhanced autopilot for 6,000 was a deliberate margin lever pulled to make up for Tesla's weak production this quarter? I don't think so. Someone asked Elon about it and he said, sure. I forgot how it came up, but it wasn't like Tesla outwardly made this um, decision. I think Elon just kind of reacted because it was such an easy flip of the switch thing they could probably do that he said, okay, you know, he grants all kinds of wishes. He's like a genie, you know, people ask him questions and he's like, he, I feel like he thinks people think of him as a genie because they ask him questions like, can I show my daughter SpaceX? Uh, and he's like, no, you can see it from the road or whatever. <laughs> like he doesn't want to grant everyone's wishes, but sometimes he's in the mood where he wants to just, you know, grant people's wishes. And someone was like, hey, can you bring me enhanced full <laughs> autopilot back? And he's like, sure, fine. And he, you know, I, that's my thought. I don't think, but it will, as a byproduct, probably increase margins um, somewhat. I don't know how much. I don't know exactly how to, some people are more bullish on it than I am. I'm personally... Not super bullish on it being some magic margin. I think a lot of people don't even know about enhanced autopilot. They probably don't market yeah. it, and, and so it's like a thing you might even have to ask for at the at the at the you know from your delivery specialist or something. So, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I could see it be like something of a lever of you know, hey, like let's try to go all out. You know, what does going all out mean? Which is what Elon always says, and. You know, it seems like this is something small that they could do that that would help the margin a little bit. Um, but but to me, the the bigger picture, the reason it makes more sense is just that it, it's kind of like an on ramp to actually purchasing full self driving, and and That's I think true. it's it's reasonable uh, to have this kind of mid step offering um, when like if you buy full self driving today, you do you don't actually get the beta program right away. Um, so so to me, like this is a good sign, and and you know maybe. 
there's a well almost certainly there's a there's a, some percentage of the of the kind of current tesla owner population who will say oh yeah you know what Twelve thousand is a bit much, but you know, if I get almost all the same functionality for six, that's a good deal. And then, hey, maybe yeah, down the road true. when the functionality gets even better and it's in like uh, it's already in wide deployment, then it's going to be a lot easier for them to you know throw down for an extra six thousand or maybe it's ten thousand by that time. Who knows? But you know, it's not going to be like this huge amount upfront all, all at the same time. So I think this is just a smart strategic move. They probably should have done it earlier. I think they kind yeah. of just thought they were going to solve autonomy faster than they did. So that's why they, yeah. they got rid of this. But um, I think it's, a, it's yeah. a really good thing, but I don't think it's, it's, it's not going to be like the savior of the quarter and like be an extra dollar of earnings or anything like that, but it should marginally help. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, next week, Matt is, and I are going to go over his model for Tesla earnings projections for Q2 um, should be exciting. So stick with us for that. Matt's been, I think you've been like, you've done some metric. You should tweet it out before the thing so people can see, but you've been like most accurate, most accurate versus any Wall Street analyst or any other buy side analyst we know in terms of, you know, earnings per share metrics, right? Something like, I mean, you've had some really impressive, uh, maybe some of it's luck. I don't know, but the facts <laughs> are that you're, you're some the most accurate. I, I can't say definitively that I'm the most accurate, but um, I, I, very I, I do have a, a decent track record, and and certainly well, you're being I've a little humble. More accurate yeah. than Wall Street yeah. uh, in aggregate. So yeah, um, yeah, you know, I always try to I try to be as middle of the road as possible. Like in my mind, yeah. if you're going to be accurate with this sort of stuff, you should miss high, you should miss low, and like yeah, with somewhat even distribution. So yeah, I'm even know, more I'm not, accurate than than like the buy side, like you know. Potter of uh, Piper Sandler, he's like really good, but you're more accurate than him. You know, you're, you're, I think you're the most accurate of all the Wall Street analysts, even as, as I think you put, we saw, right? So maybe there's some other, maybe James Stevenson or someone else is pretty closer. Who knows? But uh, you're, you're certainly, you know, I think your numbers are to be taken very seriously. <laughs> Thanks. James Stevenson, actually, he accused me of being a time traveler one time. He's like, you know, I think you just <laughs> like are from the future and you, you just like have your models to be off of just enough to not be like suspicious. So it was a, that was a very nice compliment that, that James yeah. uh, paid me, but yeah. I don't have the Elon tweet on my financial prowess yet, but uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He didn't Either Elon way, say he's the best or he's like, I think you're the best or something. Elon told him he's the best he, analyst. He said, like so. you're great or something like that. Yeah. But I think you're pretty yeah. great or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. So yeah, we'll go over that uh, the the model next week. This is the like of all the years I've been doing this. Uh, this is probably the noisiest quarter that we have so far of like Bitcoin sure. impairment and Shanghai being down. And um, I do think we're deferred, gonna have deferred revenue, revenue coming into play. Maybe yeah. So there's just a lot of of different variables. So it may get a little technical, but I'll try price to kind increases of walk from through. previous quarters. Exactly. Yeah. We'll try to walk yeah. through all the different variables FSD and kind take of how rates. we're getting where we are and and what that means and. Um, okay. like we always like to do, you, you can uh, do a sensitivity and we'll do that live and you can say, all right, what do you yeah. think the number will look like? So should yeah. be an interesting one and, uh, yeah. yeah, it'll be, it'll be a weird quarter for sure. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. So as soon as we cut this off, it's on our YouTube live channel and Twitter spaces is being recorded. So hope everyone joins us next week live, or you can watch it afterwards anytime. So good, good chatting and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks everyone.